um, we have this really, uh, you know, statement really of kind of like the standards of Jesus' kingdom, the righteousness that he expects. And uh, let's go ahead and read this first section. He's really kind of trying to uh, define his position about the law in connection with what he's teaching. So 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Alright, <laughs> he said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Why might somebody think that? He's teaching new stuff. He's teaching new stuff and particularly teaching stuff that were against what they had been hearing from the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees and so forth. And so it might seem like he was actually against the law. But that is not true. He is not against God's law. Uh, in fact, he is for it. Uh, what did he say he came to do instead of to abolish the law of the prophets? Fulfill it. To fulfill them. Now, what does that mean that he came to fulfill the law of the prophets? kind of a weird thing to say. How do you fulfill the law and the prophets? They were... A lot of stuff in them was a shadow of him. Okay. And the law and the prophets had a purpose. They were leading to Christ. Christ fulfilled them because he brought them to their goal. He accomplished what the Law and the Prophets were predicting, were looking forward to, were saying was going to happen. So instead of Jesus coming to do violence against the Law and the Prophets, he actually brought about that which the Law and the Prophets had predicted. You know, he was the one who fulfilled their purpose. And he says, you know, that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, um, so until he accomplished what it was, what was after, every single thing in the law was binding. Now, this uh, there's a couple things in verse. Not, what would it not? Hang, let's go back on that one. All right. Until Jesus fulfilled the law. Oh, the law was binding. Okay. Mm -hmm. Every detail of the law was binding. Look at a couple things in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you. Have you ever heard Jesus say that before? For verily I say to you. Does that sound like, does that sound familiar? Yeah. He says that 30 times in Matthew. Whoa. <laughs> 13 times in Mark six times in Luke, and 25 times in John, except when he says it in John, it's verily, verily, I say to you. That's, that's actually the word amen. Amen, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you. Which amen is like, absolutely, truly, 
That's the way it is. And that was a distinctive feature of Jesus' teaching style. You don't read about other people saying that. How many times in Luke? Do what? How many times in Luke? In Luke it was six and 25 in John. But John, it's always doubled. The amen, amen, verily, verily. Because Jesus was the one who could teach authoritative teachings. When Jesus taught, he taught the way it is. No, no reservations whatsoever. It was absolute what Jesus taught. So truly I say to you. Um, and, and then look at this, not the smallest letter or stroke. Some translations say not the smallest jot or tittle. Do you know what those refer to? The j do you know? Somebody, Tasha, do you know what the jot or the tittle are? They're like the, um, they're kind of like tildes and stuff in Spanish, but like accent marks and tildes, kind of. Kind of. The jot refers to the yod, which was the smallest letter, really, in Hebrew. It looked like an apostrophe, almost. Y-O-D-H, yod. There were 66, about 66,420 yods in the Old Testament. You would think one wouldn't be missed. And he says, until I fulfilled this, not the smallest yod or tittle. Now the tittle is this. There were certain letters in Hebrew that the difference between them was just a little mark. It's not this, but it's like this. What's the difference between the letter C and the letter E? Small letter C and small letter E. What's the difference? Just that little bar that goes across and connects it, right? Otherwise, a C and an E are the same thing. Or like a capital G and a capital C. Yes, exactly. That's got that little bar on the G that makes it different from the capital C. Well, they had things like that. That was with their letters, you know. But it was, it was, it was similar to that. If anything, even smaller. <laughs> and so the tittle refers to the little stroke that made one letter different from a different letter. And so you would think that wouldn't matter that much. But Jesus is upholding the absolute authority of every single most minor detail of Scripture. And until he fulfilled that, until he brought it to its completion, by accomplishing what the Scripture was pointing to, not even the very smallest thing would pass away from the law. Now, some people use this to say this. I want you to think about this argument. Some people say, this passage proves that we're still under the Old Testament law, like the Ten Commandments still apply, like you're supposed to keep the Sabbath day, and maybe you're under some of the food and drink laws and things like that. Some people say, because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And so, so, there's, so there's some laws in the Old Testament that we're supposed, still supposed to follow. What would you say about that argument? Well, it's not like the New Testament in general teaches. Well, it isn't. But what if that were true? What if he meant, I didn't intend for the law ever to be abolished, even after I fulfill it? If he meant that, that's not what he said, but if that's what he meant, could you just say, well, there's some laws in the Old Testament that we ought to follow today? How would you know? Well, 
he would say not the smallest jot or tittle. If this is saying the Old Testament is enforced today, it means every single detail of it. You could not use this passage to say, well, there's some law still enforced today. Because Jesus is talking about every single yodin and stroke. Now, this passage doesn't say that it's still enforced today. It said he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill, and it won't pass until he accomplishes it all. But when Jesus fulfilled it, then it passed. So he didn't come to hurt it in some way. He came to uphold it and to actually bring it to, it, bring it to its completion and fulfillment in him, at which time the law passed away. It was no longer our law after that point. Comments and thoughts? Okay. So, the wording in verse 18 is kind of funny because you have two until. You do! That's so it that, is kind of funny. Like, okay, so he's saying, kind of like, is that another way of saying that this statement is very true? Yes. Like, this, is, this is as sure as the universe. Okay. But and he's not saying that this will be around until heaven and earth pass away. As long as heaven and earth exist, this will be around until it's all fulfilled. So, okay. during the whole universe, it would be around until all is accomplished. Now, remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. He accomplished all of what the law said. So that's like saying even more emphatically that the only thing that will finish it is him fulfilling it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It was absolutely in force until he fulfilled it. You know, you take passages like Luke 24, 27. Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. See, all the scriptures were pointing to Jesus. He is the one that brought it to its fulfillment. Look at Luke 20, 24, 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus says it's all being fulfilled in him. He brought all of what the Old Testament law was saying to its completion. But so was he against the law? Was he trying to tear up the law? Was he trying to oppose the law? Very much the opposite of that. He was trying to do the very thing the law said was to happen. He was upholding the law. He upheld the law by being its absolute fulfillment, by doing exactly what the law pointed to in every part of it. So, verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying about the least commandment? It's still 
important. It's still important. We don't get to pick and choose which laws and commandments we like and which ones we don't. They're all important. So Jesus is in another way saying, I am not trying to destroy the law of the prophets. Every last commandment is vital. So when, when Jesus brought the law to an end, it's because he fulfilled it. Not because he thought it was okay to just kind of ignore some of it. Not because he had some kind of a liberal attitude toward it where he just thought it was kind of guidelines you could follow if you wanted to. He believed absolutely in the total authority of every letter of Scripture, even the least commandment. So what was the big deal with what Jesus was teaching? Well, verse 20. What was it that Jesus was opposing if he was not opposing the law of the prophets? The scribes and the Pharisees. Which is shocking. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There was a proverb in Jesus' day that said, if two men enter heaven, one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Jesus took them and said, you won't go to heaven unless your righteousness is greater than theirs. What a shock. It's like saying today, if two people went to heaven, one will be a preacher and the other one an elder or something like that. And Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the preachers and the elders, you'll sure not get to heaven. It's like, whoa. But that's what Jesus was opposing. That's what Jesus was showing was not right, was their standard of righteousness. And the rest of this sermon, especially in this chapter, is going to be the righteousness of Jesus versus the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is not going to be Jesus against the law and the prophets. He believed in the law and the prophets. This is Jesus against the perversions of the scribes and the Pharisees. Did you say the rest of this sermon or the rest of the book? Especially the rest of the chapter, rest of chapter 5. Jacob. In Gardner's class... Over the summer, he did Seventh Adventism, and he said this was a passage they taught, they used a lot to help them. They certainly do. And when you said, with the smallest, you know, they say that, well, all the ceremonial covenant got done away with, but everything else is still there. Exactly. They say the moral laws are binding and the ceremonial yeah. laws aren't. Yeah. They would also say it this way, the law of God is still binding, the law of Moses isn't. But the distinction they make is bogus. The Bible doesn't speak of the moral and ceremonial law, and it uses law of God and law of Moses interchangeably. And ironically, I don't know, if I had to divide it up between moral and ceremonial, what would you put the food and drink laws? Would that be moral or ceremonial to you? Ceremonial, you know where they put it? Moral. Moral. So, I mean, I don't know how they came up with their distinctions, but it's not true at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he didn't say, you know, not the smallest jot or tittle of the moral law. Uh -huh. yeah. You know, if, if, if the law is enforced today because of this passage, it is enforced in absolutely every single detail. You can't use this to say, well, some of the laws enforce because of this passage. If some of it's enforced because of this passage, every single iota of it's enforced because of this passage.
I think that's a very strong point. I mean, Jesus just doesn't let us do that. That's not an option on this passage. But what he's really doing is saying, look, guys, I'm telling things and it seems like I'm against the law and the prophets. I'm not against them at all. I'm all for the law and the prophets. You better do everything they say and I'm going to fulfill them. What I'm against is the righteous of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now you better be better than they are. All right, anything you want to say through 20? All right, he gives a bunch of examples. 21 to 26. You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. And be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. How far? 26. Make friends quickly before your opponent at law, while you, are while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the up to the last cent. Alright, now this is one example, this first example, of what Jesus is saying. And he says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. Now, does that sound like Jesus is quoting the scriptures? What did Jesus usually say as an introduction when he was quoting the scriptures? It is written. He doesn't say it's written. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told. Now, Jesus is not trying to cite here what the Old Testament said, but he's trying to cite the inadequate interpretation of the Pharisees. And he says, you understand the, the scriptures to mean this, but I'm going to tell you the correct understanding. Their understanding was what? Exactly. Their understanding was you can't actually kill them. Maim them, but don't kill them. That was their understanding. Jesus says, but I say to you, he doesn't hesitate to boldly assert his own authority. He doesn't say, but Rabbi so-and-so said this. He doesn't base what he says on any scholarly authority or precedent. He said, but I say to you, here's the way it really is. And what's the way it really is? It's in your heart. And so what is sinful according to Jesus? The anger. The anger. Anger to Jesus is a capital crime. Because that's where murder comes from. Anger is murderous in principle. And so Jesus says, you know, murder is the outward manifestation, but the soil it comes from is the anger. And so if you're angry toward a brother, you know, whether or not you get to kill him, it's the same thing. You know, 
I mean, he may be too quick and you aren't a very good shot and you just can't get him. But you fired at him. It's just kind of the luck of the draw that you didn't hit him. So you're not guilty? Well, of course you are. You know, you just were a bad shot. Or maybe you were just too scared. You didn't want to go to jail. So you didn't shoot. But you hated him just the same. You're guilty. It's, it's the heart. It's the attitude. Or well, what if you say you good for nothing? Or you fool? What about that? Why? Why does it matter if you say something like that to somebody? Not everyone's perfect. Well, not everyone's perfect, that's for sure. But think about it. When you put somebody down harshly and cut them up with what you say, you're killing them with your words. It's murder. It's murder in a different sense. You know, you're angry and you viciously attack somebody with what you say. You may not be, you know, have big enough muscles to fight them. But, but your words show you have that spirit. So, he says, you know, you can't have hatred in your heart and you can't speak murderous words. Did you have a thought or comment on 21 and 22? What if he really is a fool? <laughs> <laughs> well, the point here is not you can't say he's a fool, but you can call him an idiot. <laughs> the point is, you can't be harsh with your words. Now, there's more than one sense of a fool, obviously. The Bible speaks of fools because they were foolish in their behavior. This is using the fool in the sense of just a harsh put-down, just trying to attack them. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just really been so angry with somebody, you tried to make them feel bad with your words? That your goal was to hurt them with what you said? Maybe, I mean, maybe you cussed them out? Or maybe you just told them they were worthless and, you know, incompetent and, you know, you couldn't stand them and you hated to be around them and, you know, just things like that. I mean, it's not that, well, fool's the magic word. Don't use that one. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. That's what the Pharisees would have done. They would have come up with a list of banned words, and then they'd have said anything else they wanted to. This is, don't hurt somebody with your words. Don't let your anger cause you to, to assassinate them with what you say. And that's hard to do when you're angry, isn't it? So I think his, you know, if somebody's a fool in the, in the sense that they are acting foolishly, to calmly express what they really are is not the problem. It's to use this to destroy them that's the problem. Good question.
Other questions or comments? I wanted that too. <laughs> you wanted that too. That's a good question. And, well, all right, so you're going to worship. Now, worship in Jesus' day had to do with presenting your offering at the altar. That'd be like your animal, you know, that you brought to sacrifice. What if you're there presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you? What are you supposed to do? Make it right. You make it right. Reconciliation with your brother that you wronged takes priority over even your religious responsibility. You straighten it out with your brother. If you hurt your brother and you go to offer your sacrifice and you remember you hurt your brother, just forget about the sacrifice. Stop the worship. You go get it straightened out. That's pretty shocking, don't you think? Because you would think that presenting the offering is more important. Jesus said it's not. Wonder how many churches would be temporarily empty, emptied <laughs> if this were taken seriously. You know? I mean, how many times do people sit in the same building, you know, seething? You know, just, uh, he's hurt me so bad. Can't stand him. I wish he dropped dead. I wish he wasn't here. And we're saying, you know, angry words will let them never, you know, love one another. And, and we're, you know, partaking the Lord's Supper together and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and we've got this rift. Or, or I just did something that really hurt him. I just really put him down. I really, and, and well, he made me mad. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have to apologize to him. You know, he deserved it. We're sitting over there fuming, just kind of making sure we stay away from him. And we're worshiping God? How could God accept that? Your attention is not really at God, is it? Well, it's not. And how can you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? I mean, that'd kind of be like, what would your parents do? Some of you come from uh, large families. What would your parents do, uh, Cameron, if you had really beaten up Logan and you wouldn't speak to him, but you wanted to come eat dinner together, but you were you pushed your chair away from him and stuck your tongue out at him, and you wanted to eat? Would they let you do go on like that? It's okay to just mistreat. I mean, you wanted to, you told your parents, "Oh, I love you guys." What would they do? They probably make me make it right before eating. Yeah, I think probably they would. Go to your room until you fix this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, what, isn't that ridiculous? And if you tell your parents, oh, but I love you, Mom and Dad. You're the most wonderful parents in the world. Do you think that would help? Make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So we go up to God and we say, oh, God, we love you. You're a wonderful God. We can't wait to sing praises to you. But I hate that guy in the pew over there, and I hope he drops dead. God won't accept that. Now, isn't it amazing how much Jesus knows us? You know, this was written 2,000 years ago. You reckon anybody's ever done this since, you know? Anybody ever needed this? It's like, wow, Jesus knows that you can't worship him. It's an abomination to him for you to worship him 
when you've, when you've mistreated your brother. Maybe you just took advantage of him. Maybe you just cheated him. Maybe you just lied about him. You know, you're jealous of him, and you just said something really mean and wrong about him to try to turn somebody else against him. And now you come to worship God, and now everything's good. You know, it doesn't work like that. So I think that's very powerful. First, be reconciled to your brother. <laughs> you may go right with your brother first. So if you've done something to hurt somebody, you've done something that was wrong towards somebody, first thing you do is make that right. Then you worship God. Comments and questions about that one? Well, what about 25? This is kind of an odd statement at first when you look at it. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. Like the guy you've got a lawsuit against. You know, you, you, you get that taken care of while you're going to the courtroom so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. So he says, you know, if you got a lawsuit against somebody, you get it worked out before you get to the courtroom. <laughs> now, he's not talking about, you know, like a business kind of a case. He's talking about a personal relationship thing. You know, because you, you're trying to get something out of them that's not right. He said, you better work it out and you'd better treat them right. And you better never let this thing go to court. Because if you let it go to court, well, in God's courtroom, you'll be guilty and you'll be put in prison and you won't ever get out of there. You know, that's, that's what he's saying. So early parole is not, not an option for people who refuse to make things right with their brother. The whole idea of this is they only thought it was wrong to kill if you actually, they actually died as a result of the wound. But Jesus says, oh no. The heart of anger, the vicious words, hurting somebody and not reconciling with them. That's all what it means not to murder. You do those things, you murdered them. Even if their heart's still beating. All right, comments and questions through 26. Yes, Caleb. Um, this kind of confuses me here about like, we should we should um, solve um, like um, we shouldn't like take things to court that doesn't matter um, like um, small things like just an argument. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of confuses me here because um, I mean Jesus went to court with. Um, what wasn't really court, it was like that man who um, they were deciding who um, they um, should release. Which yeah, Barabbas or yeah, Jesus? Yeah. yeah, that wasn't Jesus suing somebody in the courtroom. Yeah. That was his enemies hauling him before the yeah. judges. Yeah, totally different situation there, obviously. 
All right, look at the next one. Here's just another illustration of what they've heard and what Jesus says. 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, what had they heard? the act of adultery. Yeah. Can't actually go all the way. You know, no adultery. Talking about the physical act itself. Jesus says, no. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, because the way he looked at her she became a visual prostitute to him. He took advantage of her body for his own visual and mental enjoyment. That's adultery in his heart. Doesn't have to be, you know, just carrying out the act before Jesus condemns it. You know, now what about, he talks about, you know, uh, adultery. That would imply, you know, maybe you're married. So you're looking at some woman other than one you're married to. What about before you're married? Could you look at a woman and lust after her before you're married? Well, the principle, you just change the, change the starting term and then they would have the same type of law there. You cannot commit fornication or something and, and leave it at that would be their interpretation. Yes, that's exactly right. What do you do when you do that? Think about, you're not married, you're young, let's say, and you're looking at a woman to lust after her. You know, in a sense, you're unfaithful to your future spouse. You know, we need to maintain our self-virgin if we're married, so that our relationship is only with our wife, if we're not yet married, so that we will be have virgin eyes, a virgin heart, a virgin body to give to our future spouse. So premarital fornication of the heart is really in the same category as, pre, as marital adultery of the heart. It's still a violation of the principle of not committing sexual sin. Now, this is not a condemnation of the desire a man has for his wife. The problem is wanting somebody else's wife and looking at somebody else's wife. That's the problem. That's the adultery. And uh, that, that's Jesus. So Jesus goes back to the heart. You looked and lusted. That's the soil from which the physical act grows. Maybe you can't ever get her away from her husband long enough to carry out the act, but your look and your heart 
created the adulterous situation, whether you ever get to carry it out or not. Comments and thoughts on 2728? All your other scenarios sound like Pharisees and scribes, what they would do. Yes. In context, if you read all that, you wouldn't come up with all the scenarios. That's exactly right. So often we want loopholes instead of understanding the principle and applying the principle. That's what they've been looking for that Jesus is criticizing uh, in this. Now he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, what should you do? And then what? Yeah, throw it out. You know. Now, oh, what about if it's, what about if it's your right hand? Cut it off and throw it from you. Now, wow. I mean, how many of you are right-handed? Most of us. Wow. What do you think he used right hand as opposed to left hand for a particular reason? Yeah, most people are right-handed. The more valuable hand for me is my right hand because I'm right-handed. He said, "You take the most valuable member of your body, and you just yank it off and throw it away from you. You don't compromise with these temptations. You don't pamper it. You don't flirt with it. You don't nibble around the edges. You don't. You don't." pluck out your eye and keep it in your hand, you throw it away. You get totally away from the temptation. In sexual purity, decisiveness is everything. You want to get that object of temptation away from you. If it's the most precious thing in your life that's causing you to sin, you get rid of it. Now, in some passages, Jesus went on to speak of the right foot also. But the foot's not used so much in adultery, so he didn't mention that in this context. But discipleship requires drastic measures, whatever it takes. <coughs> Does that make sense? Does it? Why would anybody, you know, cut off something very important to them? There's something more important. Exactly. You know, think about, you know, um, if you were working in a factory, and let's say you got your arm caught in a machine, and, and it, was, it was pulling your, it was chopping your fingers. It was pulling you by your arm into that machine that was chopping you up. If you could, at that point, if you had a, an axe or something sharp enough to do it, would you cut off your arm right then? If you couldn't get the machine stopped? If it was going to put your whole body like that? Absolutely. You would cut off even something like your arm if it was the arm or your, or your life. You know, you give up something precious if you're dealing with something even, even more. There is so much need to just really be strong and serious about sin. You take away anything you have to to avoid sin. So often we want, you know, just really light measures. You know, what if they diagnose you with cancer? And, you know, it's pretty good size and it's spreading pretty quick. And they say, well, we can cut you open and we can cut it out. And we got a 95% chance of getting it all. 
Or we can just give you a few pills now and then, make you feel a little sick, and we got a 30% chance of getting it. What you gonna do? You know, you're gonna say, cut me open and take it out. Now, I don't really think cut, being cut open sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, we hope so. But, but it, even the aftermath doesn't sound like much fun. But you do whatever it takes to get rid of this, the cancer. We, why would anybody mess around with sin and just kind of, you know, I mean, kind of these kind of people that, uh, if, if, you know, to use a whole different analogy, what if your sin is, is drunkenness? Do you keep a couple of, couple of things of whiskey in the refrigerator, just in case? No, get it away from it, throw it out, get, don't even get close to it. So that's the way to deal with these sexual temptations. Comments or questions through verse 30. I read about a man who he was in the wild and this boulder fell on him and he was pinned underneath it and he had to cut off his legs so he would escape. Wow. Would you, would you, did that make sense for him to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, otherwise he dies. Yeah, of course he died anyway. <laughs> well, so much for that. And I was going to read the book. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that, that, wasn't, that didn't help, but what if he could have saved his life by doing that? Yeah. That would help. All right, look at 31 and 32. Here's another area that they had not seen what adultery really meant. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You know, if you want a divorce, just give her a piece of paper saying you're divorcing her and send her out. But what does Jesus say? Jesus say here? If you do that, it makes her commit adultery. Yeah, you divorce her, you're making her commit adultery. How does that work? How does your divorcing her make her commit adultery? You're making it a lot easier for her to do that. Yeah, you're tempting her to remarry. Well, so, what's wrong with her remarrying? Well, that is adultery. That was shocking stuff in Jesus' day. Can you imagine somebody saying anybody who sells his car and buys another is guilty of theft? <laughs> That's about what this would have sounded like to the Jews. You divorce your wife and marry another committing adultery? I thought that's what you're supposed to do. You know, you don't marry her until you divorce the other one. But Jesus is teaching that when you put her away, when you send her out with her divorce papers and she remarries, she's committing adultery and you're responsible. That's really strong teaching. It's to divorce a mate makes them guilty of adultery. Uh, that, that just, wow. They didn't, they didn't think about that. They said don't commit adultery. But they didn't think about what all it meant. Committing adultery also includes remarriage. 
Because by God's law, you're bound to one person and married to another. That's adultery. You, you have to be married to the one God bound you to. Um, what if you just then divorce your mate because, well, you don't get along? Can you do that? No. You know, it doesn't matter whether you can get along or not. You don't put them in a position to be tempted to commit adultery. You stay with them. There's only one exception given to this, and that's in Matthew 19. We divorced them because they were sexually unfaithful to you. Otherwise, you don't have that option. Comments and questions about that? It sometimes generates some questions. Why doesn't he address the one divorcing in this passage? Well, that's what he is addressing. He's saying the one divorcing makes his mate commit adultery but by divorcing. The one, yeah, but he doesn't address the one divorcing, committing adultery himself, when he marries another, which no. is in Matthew 19. And in other passages. But here he's just looking at it from the standpoint, when you divorce her, you're guilty before God of the adultery she commits when she remarries. Maybe you're not going to remarry. I hear people saying that all the time. Well, I'm going to divorce them. I remember years ago, talking to a guy around here, a long time ago, and, uh, you know, he was divorcing his wife. I'm not going to get married. Well, I told him it didn't matter as far as it being sinful. It was still sinful for him to divorce her because of passages like this. Now, he did later get married. <laughs> you know, that's often the way those things go. But what if you didn't? What if you really were, I'm just going to divorce him and you don't get married again? A lot of people would say, well, then you're okay. Because you're not committing adultery yourself if you don't remarry, Right. But what are you doing to your wife, who you divorced? When she remarries, you're causing her to commit adultery. So he's really not dealing with it from the standpoint of you're committing adultery. Because you're saying, I won't get married, I won't get remarried, I'll be fine, I won't get remarried. Doesn't matter. Look at what you're doing to her by divorcing her. That's wrong. And even if she doesn't remarry either, it's it's still wrong for other passages. Why? Uh, what are other reasons why it'd still be wrong to divorce? Well, you God broke a bunch of promises. promises. Yeah, God hates divorce. You broke promises. Did you say, I'll, I'll stick with you for better or for worse until death do us part? And if you divorce him before death part you, then you have just made yourself a royal liar. You know, because you took those <laughs> vows before God and all these witnesses, didn't you? And uh, besides that, what God joins together, let not man put us under. What about this scenario? This is what comes up a lot. All right, so, um, you know, I decide to divorce my wife. And she doesn't want it. I just, I just got tired of her. I don't want her anymore, so I'm going to divorce her. And she, she is opposed to it. She does everything she can to save the marriage. She, she offers to go to counseling. She offers, and I don't want that. And she still, she didn't sign the papers, but you can get a divorce without them signing the papers. You know, if you're determined to get a divorce, you can divorce them. She was against it. She, she kept saying, no, I don't want the divorce. I want to save this marriage, and I just won't listen to her. And so I divorce her anyway. Now, in her situation, 
if I don't ever marry again, can she remarry? No, she'd be committing adultery. If I remarry again, then can she get married? No. Same difference. Doesn't matter what I do after that. She will commit adultery when she remarries. I call her the victimized party in this passage. The victim in this passage commits adultery when they remarry. Whether I remarry or whether I don't, the one who's divorced by her husband commits adultery when she remarries. That is often not understood. So is the same thing true, your scenario, but the guy dies? If the guy dies, she's not bound to him anymore. And so I believe she would have the right to marry. That vow was taken only till death separates us. And God's binding of her in that marriage is only until the death of her spouse. So I do believe she would have the right to marry after the death of her spouse. So are you saying that's true because he wasn't unfaithful while they were married? You know, let's take this scenario. I, you know, if, if, maybe we'll make it John and Jane, that's always easy. <laughs> John, unbeknownst to Jane, has a lady at the office that he visits, but she knows nothing about the lady at the office. He tells her that he's divorcing her because, fill in the blank, they're incompatible, she doesn't please him anymore. You know, whatever. She stinks. So he's divorcing her. And he does. He divorces her. Now, he committed fornication, but she doesn't know he committed fornication. And he divorces her and goes on about his, his merry way. Can she remarry since he committed fornication? Not if you know. She didn't divorce him for the reason of fornication. Yes. Some people say, well, adultery breaks the marriage bond. Is that true? No. You can still be married. What breaks the marriage bond? Divorce for fornication breaks the marriage bond. Well, if adultery breaks the marriage bond, if you stay together... You're exactly you're right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Adultery doesn't break it. Divorcing them for that reason frees you to remarry, according to Matthew 19. So, if, if John committed adultery... And then John ended up putting away his wife. She can't remarry. But he has a huge burden and responsibility in that. He's the one who's guilty of her adultery. Not that she's not, but he put her there. He, he, he reached out his, his uh, leg and caused her to stumble and fall and, you know, break her hip or whatever. So it's his fault. That's what he's saying. You, you are not committing adultery. I'm telling you, don't you divorce your wife because you'll make her susceptible to committing adultery. It's a very good idea to think very carefully before we marry because marriage, by God's decree, is for the rest of your life. You don't like to sentence yourself to anything for the rest of your life if you're not pretty sure it's going to be a good idea. <laughs>
What, yeah. what about another scenario if John committed adultery and they don't get a divorce, Jane doesn't know about it until 20 years later. He did it like the first year of their marriage and then he doesn't anymore. Then she finds out about it. Can't she divorce him? Well, all we know is what Jesus said. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's all we have to go on. So the question would be, in that case, is she divorcing him for sexual immorality? Perhaps, if that's the true reason, and she divorces him when she finds out, she would be. That's, but that's, the, that's all we know. It's just that phrase... Whoever divorces, except for fornication and marriage. You said you can't come up with another reason, and then you just that. Yeah, well, you see, that happens. What I've seen this before. John and Jane are going along, and John has an affair, and Jane finds out about it, and John begs for forgiveness, and she forgives him, and she doesn't really want to lose him, and they stay together. And then a few years later, he's turned out to be a real idiot. And she's ready to get rid of him. Well, he committed adultery back there. I'm going to divorce him for, for adultery. I say that's not why she's doing it. You know, that just con came inconvenient. But she's really doing it for some other reason. The question is, did she do it for the sexual immorality? Not was there sexual immorality. Just there being sexual immorality doesn't mean that's why she's divorcing. Or even if she's tired of him, then he has an affair. Oh, great, this is my way out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be even more. Um, yeah, and there could be various, you know, issues involved even in that. But, but we're not given a lot of information, but the information we're given in the Bible makes this a very tough topic in the sense that under normal circumstances, marriage is to be forever until one of you dies. And if you divorce, you're committing sin. And if you remarry, you're committing adultery. That's the basic Bible teaching. The exception's rather narrow. Exception's only given to the one who does the divorcing and does it because of the other one's betrayal. Other comments? Where do you put legal separation in this? The Bible never speaks of legal separation. Uh, the Bible speaks of separation for spiritual purpose with mutual consent for a limited time and then you come back together. But usually legal separation is we're not getting along so we're not going to live together. That's not 1 Corinthians 7. That's the only separation I know about is that separation. So you would say that's sin? Yeah, I know of no authorization in the Bible to just decide not to live together. Um, I do know Paul availed himself of legal protection on some occasions, and I, I don't see a problem with doing that. When did he do that? Um, when he said, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh. Is it lawful to uh, meet me? When he appealed to Caesar and things like that. So I would not have a problem if, uh, you know, your husband's being violent to you, call the police. They'll deal with it. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, other thoughts? So is he, uh, it appears coming in at the very end of the duration of the old law and correcting <laughs> what they've had wrong for 
400 years. <laughs> but, but remember, Jesus is doing more than just that. He is doing that, but he's doing more than that. Jesus doesn't say, but the true understanding is. Jesus goes one step beyond that, but he says, but I say to you. So what Jesus is teaching here is more than just explaining the Old Testament. Jesus is actually teaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we started with in 423. This is actually his teaching in contrast with the Pharisees' perversion. Not the truth about the Old Testament in contrast with the Pharisees' perversion. People get that wrong on both ends. Sometimes people think Jesus is contrasting with the Old Testament law. He was not. He's contrasting with the Pharisees' misinterpretation. Some people think all he's doing is giving the correct interpretation. He's not. He's giving his gospel truth about this. So this is gospel teaching, not just explaining the Old Testament for the next few months before it went out of effect. <laughs> so he's talking about principles that still that are part Absolutely. of his gospel. Absolutely. But they I mean, were the Old Testament too. They just weren't doing them. Yes, yeah, to a great extent that's true. Was the divorce? But the divorce was not clear in the Old Testament. Now, what they said was wrong. The Old Testament never did say, you know, uh, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was not correct. And Jesus pointed that out in Matthew 19. You know, um, what the law said is, if you find something you don't like in your wife, and if you divorce her by putting the paper in her, your hand, and if you marry again, and if you become widowed or divorced after you've married again, then you can't go back to number one. That's what the law said in Deuteronomy 24. The law never said, just give her a writing divorce. The law said, if you do these things, then. So, But the law didn't say not to either. Jesus is going beyond what the law says here to actually condemn the divorce. The law really didn't say yes or no about that. It just regulated it in the sense of if you do these things, then you could never go back to your first name. But you're saying the other things in here, though, were in the law, such as the murder. And, I mean, they should not have even been angry but I think even in these things, Jesus probably goes a step beyond what they would have known. Um, you know, to reconcile with the guy you're suing, or, you know, later on to say, pray for your enemies and things like that, was probably a step beyond what they knew from the Old Testament. Certainly, they were wrong in their interpretation. They were way abbreviated from what the truth was. But Jesus does not hesitate to add to what the Old Testament said, because he says, but I say to you. So Jesus is contrasting their misinterpretation of the Old Testament with his gospel truth about the matter, which goes beyond just the correct understanding of the Old Testament. That's, that's a hard thing for us, and people really struggle with that. But, but remember the formula. You have heard that the ancients were told. That is not, it is written. He's saying, this is your misunderstanding. But he contrasts with that every time, but I say to you. Not, but what you really should have done. That when he says, but I say to you, that is always used for Jesus, you know, teaching in here.
And, uh, and if it wasn't, here's the thing. Now, there are people, for example, that take Matthew 19 and the exception Jesus makes and say, well, that was just for the Old Testament period. But that would mean that Jesus taught that and it was only going to be valid for about, you know, six more months from Matthew 19. And then it was over. And Matthew bothered to record it dozens of years later, something that had been obsolete now for several years. You know, that wouldn't make a bit of sense. When Jesus said, but I say to you, he is going beyond the limits of the Old Testament to say, but my gospel says this. In contrast with your perverted understanding of the Old Testament, the truth of my gospel is this. So I don't think you could say from the Old Testament that divorce itself was wrong. I don't think you could say from the Old Testament divorce itself was right. I think God just kind of let it happen. Kind of like polygamy. Can you say polygamy was wrong in the Old Testament? I don't think you really can. Can you say polygamy was right in the Old Testament? I don't think you really can. I don't think God dealt polygamy in the Old Testament. He was bringing the people along one step at a time. By the time you get to, but I say to you in Jesus' day, you got the ideal law. Thoughts? We'll pick up at the start at least of one more, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, Yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So, notice verse 21 and verse 33 have the full formula. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told. That divides this kind of in half. You have 21, 27, and 31. And then you have 33, 38, and 43. You have three in each section. Both of them started with, you have heard that the ancients were told. Well, what were they heard? What did they heard that the ancients were told? And you must fulfill your vows to the Lord. If you make your vow to the Lord, you have to fulfill it. <laughs> did you notice Matthew twenty three sixteen? This really tells you what they were doing. This was hilarious if it wasn't serious. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You know, there was like, well, if you swear by the temple, it's okay. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you have to do it. That reminds me of what we did on the playground. Do they still do that on the playground? When do you not have to tell the truth? Got your fingers crossed. I had my fingers crossed. Did I not do that these days? You got to 
Caleb, do they do that these days? Um, I don't think so. You haven't like, heard of that? You're doing what, like? Like, if you got your fingers crossed, you don't have to tell the truth. No. No. You got it. You know? Maybe they might. They I mean, okay. I've heard of it, but anymore they don't really do that. Yeah, that's the way we did. Or sometimes then, if you had a lie, they don't care whether their fingers are crossed. <laughs> <laughs> that's it yeah. Anymore. Or sometimes even if you had your legs crossed. But sometimes then, if you had two things crossed, then that uncrossed because it's double <laughs> negative and it undid it. You didn't go through all that, Chris. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, yeah. It was big at Southport uh, schools. Yeah. So, uh, but but that's baloney. You know, it doesn't make any difference what you swear by. You got to tell the truth. There's not two classes of utterance: one that you have to tell the truth, and the other one you can lie about. He says in verse 34, "But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of His feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great King. You shall not, nor shall you make an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black." He's saying, "I don't care what you swear by." You gotta tell the truth. By the way, ancient uh, interpreters took verse thirty-six as as, a, as an order not to dye the hair. Oh no! <laughs> Which is a uh, very obvious misinterpretation there, but kind of humorous. So if you ever want to preach against dyeing the hair, here's the verse. No, I think it's saying if you dye your hair, then it's okay to make you're, you're able to make one hair black or white. There you have it. There you no, have it. it's just saying you can't dye it white or black. It's okay to dye it black. Yeah, that's what it is. That's pretty if common you these days. Yeah. yeah. If you dye your hair, um, the color your hair is. Like if you're <laughs> <laughs> now, why would you dye the, your hair the color your hair is? Because it's turning colors, and you don't want everybody to know you're old. Oh well, I think age is a great thing. Obviously, this is outdated. For you can make one hair black or white. Yeah, because right. they couldn't back then. That's right. Not by swearing about it. <laughs> but Jesus is saying every oath is binding, and really. You ought to be the kind of person that doesn't need to swear by anything. You know, it ought to be that people who know you well know they can trust your word. They don't have to say, well, swear to me. You know, take an oath, you know, pretend on the Bible, you know. It ought to be that you have such character that your word is as good as a, you know, oath with, you know, swearing by everything that there is. That's what he's saying. He said, let your, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Whatever more than that comes from evil. The only reason you need more than that is because people lie. If they didn't lie, you'd never have to worry about it. Now, is this meaning I cannot take a solemn oath? No. No. And we say no because? God did, and Paul did, and... Yeah. And if it's good enough for God and Paul, it's good enough for us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus, even, was put under oath on trial. So it's not wrong to take a solemn oath. What's wrong is to lie. No matter what you swear by or what you had crossed. <laughs> you can cross your toes. That counts. When they were in your shoes, you could cross your toes and nobody would ever know. <laughs> I'm not sure you could cross your toes when they're in your shoes, but that's another matter. Where did Paul take it? 
Um, well, one passage would be 2 Corinthians 1. He did quite a few times, just thinking of that one at the moment. He was fulfilling a vow at one point. Well, he did that too. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 1.18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. And then in and 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God as witness to my soul that I to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. There's several statements like that. And one time didn't he say, I am telling the truth, I am not lying? <laughs> yeah, that's Romans 9. <laughs> Yeah. Not that he used anything at that point other than himself. But. Yeah, actually he did, though. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Okay. And I'm telling the truth in Christ. Yeah, so I think he did even there. There's several passages where he calls God to witness. And that's taken And where does God do uh, Well, uh, in Hebrews 6. He's declared by no one higher than himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Luke 173, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, and so forth and so on. And Jesus uh, was put under oath in Matthew 26, and even 64, I think it is. the old law and, and the uh, ratifying of it was a, an oath. Yeah, an oath. that's exactly right. So, you know, sometimes people, you know, don't consider what the Bible says as a whole on a topic. And so if all you look at is narrowly this passage and you don't understand it in the light of Matthew 23, in the light of things that were approved by God, some people have come to the idea of saying, well, you can promise, but you can't swear. <laughs> which, which probably doesn't matter. That's probably saying very the same thing. You know, um, because promising something, how is that different from taking an oath? I mean, essentially, it's adding to your simple statement something else for confirmation. And, and Jesus is saying, you shouldn't need to. But he's not forbidding the practice. He's forbidding any subterfuge by which you lie. Couldn't think of the easy word for subterfuge. That's a good word, but what's, what's a, the word subterfuge? Uh, well, he's forbidding any subterfuge by which you would tell a lie. Any like... Um, yeah, any 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 devious, crafty manipulation. Okay. Oh, it's like the people that would say you can't swear or do an oath or doing again what he's condemning in this whole passage. Yeah, that's true. Being fair cycle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really <laughs> makes a difference when you see the context. Yeah. Context really uh, ruins a lot of good sermons. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, it makes that a stronger... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. And we always need to look at the context, both the immediate and the Bible as a whole, to understand the truth. They do the same thing with the do not judge. Yes. <laughs> you yes. can't judge. It says don't judge. But it says judge. <laughs> yeah. Well, and usually when they're telling you that, they're judging you. <laughs> it's like the person who's extremely critical of people who are extremely critical. <laughs> You know, what? I said hypocrites. Yeah. <laughs> you know that song, like, in the 90s, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky, I'll be there. Do you know that song? I don't. And I was like, oh, that's a horrible song. Shane, <laughs> <laughs> I swear so many times. <laughs> 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 it's actually 
actually a good song. Yeah, he's like, for better or worse, till death to this part, I swear, I'll be there. And I was like, oh no, he should have been promising. Promise is two syllable, he needs one. <laughs> Probably didn't rhyme. <laughs> Right, you can't say I promise I'll be there. You have to say I swear. Yeah, the tune was already written, and well, you know they couldn't change it. So. I promise I'll be mamas. Just I'll be work. always there for you. <laughs> All right. Well, any other questions or comments on uh, anything through verse thirty-seven? Didn't know this passage was this entertaining, but I can see it is. So. All right, well, we will stop here, and I think I will be here next week. There's a slight question about that, but I 